This is a Fuente podcast. Hey guys, welcome back. Um, I'm going to continue with Mark this time. Uh, and I think I'm just going to. Um, after I finish this part in chapter one, I think I'm going to just go to the the temple discourse of Mark and talk about that, and maybe talk about the resurrection, and then talk about um, how it affects us and how it ties into the Old Testament. Um, I just want to get all of my core beliefs and the things most important down in the podcast. Because I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to do it because uh, I'm a teacher and I have my fall semester coming up pretty soon. And I'm going to be super busy. Um, and so I don't think I'll be able to, at the, you know, at the very least I won't be able to do it as a weekly thing anymore. It'll just be irregular when it comes out probably if I continue to even do it at that time. So I want to try and go ahead and record a couple of these and get to a, a point where I'm comfortable with that. And then I also want to do another episode on humanism that's uh, made with my better quality recording equipment. And maybe that isn't quite so harsh in its tone. Um, that was going off a script that I wrote when I was in the middle of a faith crisis. And so there was a lot of angst, you know, within myself for and against these and like I almost kind of felt betrayed by humanism because like I felt like I was raised in a in a belief system that had very bad evidence and then coming out of it I thought that you know I could be safe in humanism and then it let me down and so there was like anger and weird emotions put into the script of that episode because I was reading from a script that's like seven years old so I, uh, I'm going to re-record that with just a different tone than I had when, when I recorded it. Okay, but on to where we left off. Last time we talked about how there's sort of a replay of the garden scene. There's a nakash here, there's a, a man, um, and there's divinity and there's animals. All in the desert. All in this, this temptation scene. So there's an echo of creation there. There's also an echo of the flood story um, because here he is in the desert and he's there for 40 days, like with the flood. And the wilderness is sort of like uncreated chaos and so is water. Water is also uncreated chaos and so is darkness, but darkness doesn't appear in any echo to this particular design pattern. Um, it's also an echo of the Israelites traveling through the wilderness for 40 years. Um, it's also an echo of Moses fasting for 40 days in the desert. So whenever you read this particular story, imagine all the text of the Bible is laying out before you. A bunch of other stories are lighting up the same color. Think of it like that, where you hit this one particular one and... And then the, the same pattern is in these other areas. Imagine it lighting up as well. Okay. Um, so he's attended by a wild animal, or he's, uh, he's with wild animals and angels attend him. All right. So far in this gospel, we've had John the Baptist preparing the way, um, talking about how you'll be baptized. I baptize with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, God comes and says, you're my son. That's like an inauguration ceremony. That's God choosing Jesus as king. That's what that language means. 
And then we have Jesus being an, a new Adam and not falling for the Nahash this time. He, he resists the temptation. So we have a king who's resisting the temptation, who's meeting with divinity, who's been chosen by God so far. And this is right after his Mark's intro where he says that John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for the Lord. Now this is important because um, scholars like Bart Ehrman, uh, they believe in what's called a low Christology, which means they don't believe that Jesus was originally interpreted as God. Like they might say, yeah, he might have been an angel or he might have been divine. But they, they deny early high Christology. They deny that that the early Christians believed that Jesus was God. And I believed this too when I was an atheist. I thought that there was it was low Christology, and I thought that Jesus had become a God over time. Um, as you study the Jewish culture and Jewish context and how this plugs into the Old Testament, you realize that's ridiculous. Uh, it's absolutely everywhere. Yeah, Jesus doesn't say, I am God. But with his actions, and in really it's in his actions and the way he... he is displayed in these patterns you start to see that he's walking like god literally on water that's job 9 and he's um he's doing things that god's supposed to be doing according to the old testament prophets okay and i also so if you remember in the the whenever abraham did the sacrifice where the animals were cut in half and god says god go walks through that covenant twice instead of Abraham, uh, you know, so impliedly alleging that if the covenant's ever broken, God's going to cut himself in half. Okay, you're seeing God as a man living up to that promise now. So the covenant was with mankind. How's God going to cut himself if he's in a covenant relationship with man? He does it by becoming a man. Okay. After John uh, was put in prison, that's all it says. It just interrupts this temptation story. After John was put in prison. So we know chronologically this is sometime later. And we know that it was common knowledge that at one point John was put in prison to this original audience. Otherwise, he would have filled this in with more data for us. But he says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. I can only imagine what was going on in Jesus' head. So, have you ever seen one of your predecessors fall or die or be put out of work and then that puts pressure on you to try to, like, fill the void that they left? We had a, um, we had two youth leaders leave our youth group and there was, like, this void there and I felt like I had to step up and fill it in and there was a lot of anxiety and a lot of like feeling like i was the wrong person for this i was unprepared jesus went to galilee proclaiming the good news of god okay so he steps in proclaiming the good news what's the good news again well that's that word gospel we always hear that just means good news it's evangelion from the septuagint version of isaiah and what was the good news there the good news was just that God is coming to Zion, and he's going to reign. And if you look at Isaiah, you see that whenever God starts to reign, there's going to be a new creation, and a judgment, and a shoot from Jesse, and it's going to be like a new exodus. Okay, that's Isaiah 10, 26, 11, 16, and 15, uh, uh, 19, 1. There's going to be a return from exile. 
There's going to be disabled people healed. You see that in Isaiah 29, 18, 33, 23 through 24, 34, 5 through 6. You see apocalyptic language used by Isaiah. You see um, lots of references to fire being used as a method of, of judgment. Um, judgment against the nations. You also see uh, a promise of the nations joining. Um, you see judgment against Israel. Judgment against the nations. So like a nation's join, you can see in chapter 12, verse 4, 14, verse 1, 18, verse 7, uh, 19, verse 25. Um, yeah, so, oh, and atonement, that's Isaiah 27, verse 9. So there's a whole lot of promises that are set up um, that are supposed to be coming with the, whenever God is reigning and bringing about a new creation. Um that's the good news. So the good news is, hey guys, you're sick of being beaten up by Romans. Well, guess what? God's going to come in. He's going to clean house. He's going to end the exile. He's going to bring the exiles home. He's going to reign and he's going to heal the sick. Um, and judge the nations. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Well, why is repenting? what you're supposed to do whenever God's coming in his kingdom. I can only reckon it's because they're scared of that coming judgment. Um, they're scared of what's going to happen when God gets there. And I think there's a reference to that in Isaiah 30 verse 19. I'm going to read that real quick. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Um, I have that marked in my Bible as, as repentance. I have no idea why. I guess just them, uh, them crying for help. I'm sorry. Hold on one second. 31 verse 6. Let me see if that's a better quote. Return, you Israelites. To, okay, this is better. To the one who you have so greatly revolted against. For in that day, every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold and your sinful that your sinful hands have made. So it's hinting that there's going to be a great repentance whenever the day of the Lord comes, this time of judgment, whenever God comes and reigns in Zion. So repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. What's interesting is usually disciples chose their rabbi that they would follow. But here Jesus is choosing his disciples. And he's not choosing scholars or people who are translating the Torah from Greek to Hebrew or some learned people. He's picking fishermen. Fishermen weren't the lowest of the low. They're sort of like middle class of this era. And once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they led, left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So once again, there's that middle class. They have, they're able to afford hired men to work with them. Um, Alright, so he grabs these four guys who had been fishing, and he says, Come now and be fishers of men. When Jesus calls us, 
there's always this tension of what am I supposed to be what I was before or am I supposed to be something totally new and here there's kind of thematically and metaphorically this idea of you remain a fisherman but now you're fishing for men so you don't have to change who you are but you have to become a more complete version of what you were in some way they went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. So these teachers of the law would pull out you know, Torah scrolls and debate about them. But Jesus is speaking as though he knows what's actually intended. And it's controversial, but also amazing. Um, well, it's not controversial yet. You're going to see, I think it's important to note as we go through the story, what it is that puts Jesus at odds with the powers that be. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us? Plural. The uh, first person plural. Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? And then listen to what he says. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He's called out Jesus by name. What do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth. What's interesting is in First Palestinian ritual texts and, and magical texts and talismans and so forth, it was believed that if you said the name of a person, you could get magical powers over them. This is what the demons... Are attempting to do right now when they say what do you want with us Jesus of Nazareth as though we know who you are you can't control us we're going to control you um, and what's interesting is this these demons I don't know if there's multiple demons within this man or multiple demons within this community and this one's speaking on behalf of all of them but there's that first person plural us uh, be quiet said Jesus sternly come out of him so Jesus just gives a command. So a lot of times in first century Jewish Palestinian rituals for how to remove a demon from a person, you have to get all these herbs and spices and say these certain things. I think there's um, apocryphal literature about King Solomon having a ring that you can use to get rid of demons, which actually that ring appears in Final Fantasy VIII, if any of you have ever played that video game. Um, but here... He merely just says, be quiet, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Remember, that was during a Sabbath. And... One of, another one of the themes that keeps popping up within Isaiah is that whenever the Lord comes to, to reign, it's going to be a time of nuach, a time of rest. That word nuach is also the name Noah. So Noah from the Bible is actually nuach. His name means rest. Um, and if you remember before the flood, before the story of Noah, the father says, I'm going to name him Nuach because he's going to bring Nuach from the curse and from the Dardar, from the thorns and all that. Dardarim? I can't remember the name for thorn in Hebrew. But um, Isaiah, in his work, writings, he talks about this coming Nuach. Um, I have 
Noah 14.3 written in my Bible. So let's see what Isaiah 14.3 says. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. So that's the nations joining with them. Uh, let's see. Oh, here's three. And the Lord will give you relief. Okay, and if you look it up in the original Hebrew of uh, Isaiah, it's Haniach, and that's from the root Nuach. Okay? He'll give you relief from your suffering, your turmoil, from the harsh labor forced on you. You will be... You, uh, so the harsh labor forced on you, that's a reference to Exodus. So uh, it's like a... Um, you're going to get a rest like the time of Noah. You're going to get freedom from the forced labor like the time of uh, the Exodus. Oh, within that passage. But here... Um, yeah, the, the Shabbat is the time of rest. And there, it was believed that with 77s of Shabbats, they would finally get to the ultimate Shabbat. It'd be like a mega Shabbat where there would finally be true nuach, true rest. And so there's symbol... Watch what Jesus is doing on these Sabbaths, these Shabbats. And it's really, really interesting stuff. He brings rest here to this person who was being tormented. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went to the uh, with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So she went. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and helped her up. The fever left, and she began to wait on them. This is pointing toward. This is figuring the kingdom. You see points where the disabled and the sick are healed in Isaiah at multiple points. I'm just going to name a few. Isaiah 29, 18, uh, 33, 23 through 24, Isaiah 34, 5 through 6. Um, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. So perhaps this person who is speaking in the synagogue was speaking for multiple demons within the congregation. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now this is our first hint that Jesus is trying to hide who he is from these people. And a lot of times, modern people today will be like, the low Christology people. Well, why was he trying to hide who he was? And uh, if he'd have really believed he was God, he would have been proclaiming it in the road with a megahorn, with a you know whatever. It's very very dumb because claiming that the kingdom is here is enough to be controversial. Imagine on top of that saying I'm God and I'm the king. Okay, why is that controversial? I'll tell you. He's being okay. He's being sort of around the bush. He's saying the kingdom is here. If a kingdom is there, though, what do you need to have a kingdom? You need to have a king. Okay? Who's supposed to be the king in this new era? Well, it depends. The prophets sometimes say it's Yahweh himself, and sometimes they say it's a shoot from Jesse, or it's the son of David in Ezekiel 34. Actually, Ezekiel 34 is a perfect example of this because it says that God's going to be their king and it says that the son of David's going to be their king. Um, Isaiah says it, but in different spots. But okay, so Jesus is saying the kingdom is here. Impliedly, that means the king is there too. Okay, and who does Jesus believe is the king? And who does the writer of Mark believe that is the king? 
Well, they have this story where God says, you're my son in whom I'm well pleased. Highly, highly hints that Jesus would know or think, or at least the author of Mark would know or think, that Jesus is the king. Now, why is that controversial? Well, Israel already has a king. His name is Herod. Okay, and he's not the Herod from the birth stories from Matthew and Luke. He's Herod and Typus. I think he's the nephew of that Herod the Great. And Israel has another king. His name is Caesar. Okay, so they have um, Caesar Augustus. Well, at least when Jesus was a kid, it was Caesar Augustus. I think it's Claudius at this time. They have the emperor. Uh, they have emperors. It might have actually been August. I can't remember. But the point being, there's already kings in, in charge. And if you step forward and say, hey, I'm the king, that's a great way to get your head chopped off. Um, that'd be like, you know, going into the White House and saying, I'm the president. And everybody's like, I didn't vote for you. Who are you? Only, well, they didn't even vote. But, okay, I'm getting distracted. You wouldn't let them speak because they knew who he was. If they start talking about your the Messiah, that might get Jesus killed. Later on, Jesus is going to be okay with being killed. Okay, He's going to go to Jerusalem, and in, and he knows what everybody thinks about him, and he knows what they're going to do to him. And you don't have to be a prophet to know you're going to be killed if you're saying, I'm the Messiah, and you go to Jerusalem and knock over a table in the temple. Okay, he knew what he was doing, and he chooses his death later on. He doesn't want to be killed yet, and so he's not being as blatant about it. Very Okay, continue. Yeah, and I'd always wondered about that as a kid. Why is Jesus so secretive about being the Messiah? That's why. It's because he doesn't want to be killed. And you're going to see that a lot in his parables, too. In his parables, they're always pointing to the fact that he's the king. He's Yahweh coming to Zion to rule, but he's doing it obliquely where he won't be found out and killed. But... People can figure out the message if they're curious and think about it. That's the deal with parables. Okay, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, part of these, why Mark wrote these narratives is because he wants to give us an example to live by. And before he's spoken to anyone else in the day, Jesus goes and prays and talks to God. Um... I found that whenever I go too long without praying, a lot of times think something will feel off balance or I'll feel depressed or I'll feel powerless, especially in this crazy time we're living in. And it might just be you aren't spending enough time praying. Like I think probably 99% of Christians out there aren't spending barely any time praying. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. We spend all this time reading or thinking about all these other things, and we have the God of the entire universe ready to listen to us, loving us more than anything, knowing everything about us, and we're not even talking to him. And I will get on a rabbit trail of, well, if God knows everything, why do we even have to talk to him? He wants us to wrestle with him. And it's not that we change his mind or change who he is, but he wants us to play a part in the ruling and reigning of this world. We're his imager, Okay. It's like in the story with uh, Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. God's trying to decide whether to tell Abraham what he's going to do. And then he does. And then he sits there and debates with Abraham. Abraham says, no, spare this many. Spare this many. God invited Abraham to wrestle with him. God invites us to wrestle with him. Jesus wrestles with God. Um, 
he renames Jacob Israel, which means wrestles. So he wrestled with him literally all night. Um, we're supposed to be wrestling with God. And it's not like he doesn't know what we're going to do, but he wants us to play a part in what's happening in this world. And he wants us to do that by asking him for help. Okay. It's not about logic. Obviously, logically, God could just do whatever's in our heads and we wouldn't even have to ask him. It's about relationship. He wants us to wrestle with him. Now, why is that? I don't know. God's a weird guy, okay? He wants us to wrestle with him and to advocate for people. He, I mean, if it was me, you know, I wouldn't have made these little images of myself that mess everything up. But for some reason, he loves us and he wants us to try to represent him to the world and to wrestle with him and while we're doing that. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. So there's this expectation here that Jesus is just supposed to be available to everyone all the time. But Jesus is withdrawn to speak to God alone. Um, that's kind of a reminder that sometimes it's not about how we display ourselves to everyone else or what everyone else is thinking. Sometimes you just need to spend time with God and not worry about who sees it or who's looking at you or what they think about you. And you can spend time with God and not post it on Instagram and try to get likes. Don't take a picture of your Bible study and put it on Instagram. Just do it and feel it with your heart and make it about God and not about how other people are seeing you. Okay, here Jesus is escaping from people, not putting it on Instagram. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. And that doesn't necessarily mean that's the only reason I have come. We shouldn't take every statement Jesus says and use it like an objective, categorical imperative on himself. He's just saying that's you know one of the reasons I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Uh, I think I'll pause it there for this one. Man, Mark 1 is dense. Oh no, we're almost done. I'm going to go ahead and finish out this chapter. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, the next reaction by Jesus is, is controversial. It says, Jesus was indignant. Uh, that's confusing because it's... Do you, really, he was angry? Some manuscripts say Jesus was filled with compassion. Some say he was indignant. And that's really confusing. What's interesting is if you look at the Aramaic... Indignant and compassionate are almost the same word. So my guess is that it probably originally said compassionate, and then typographically some early Aramaic manuscripts switched it to indignant. And possibly the other way around. But given the other context of Jesus and the way that he reacts to sick people, it doesn't really make any sense. So I think he's probably he was compassionate. Because um, look at his next action. He reached out and touched the man. So you wouldn't touch somebody with leprosy if you're pissed off at him. Uh, probably he was compassionate. Uh, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And, he, and this guy's begging on his knees. Jesus reaches out and touches the man and says, I am willing, he said, be clean. 
Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. What's interesting here is that Jesus, according to the Levitical law, would have been ritually um, impure after having touched somebody with leprosy. But look, the, the instead it reverses. Jesus' purity goes into the man and now both of them are pure. It's very interesting. It's a reversal of how it would have used to have been. Jesus doesn't get leprosy from the man. Instead, he gives the man health. That's kind of like we put death into Jesus, but then life comes back. This man put his leprosy into Jesus, but health came out. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. This used to bother me when I read this as a kid because I was like, well, didn't Jesus get rid of the Levitical law? Um, but look here, he says, as a testimony to them. And there's nothing wrong with doing the Levitical law. Um, another interesting thing to point out here that makes this different from other stories is that he's wanting this man to share what Jesus has just done. But later on, you'll see that Jesus starts telling people he's healed not to tell anyone. But maybe for some reason, these particular priests in this area are guys that Jesus wants to have be aware of the fact that he can heal. Um, but look, this is what the guy does instead. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people came to him from everywhere. Oh, okay. So, uh, sorry, I missed that Jesus said, don't tell this to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. For some reason, Jesus only wanted the priests to know. But instead, this guy goes and tells everyone. That's interesting. I'm not sure why that is, but maybe it has something to do with the fact that, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. He had to withdraw a lot and be alone. And it says, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So even when he tried to get away, he couldn't. Um, Alright, that's it for this chapter. Hopefully that was able to let y'all see some stuff in a new way. I think the most important parts of that chapter were covered in the first two um, podcasts in Mark dealing with uh, the good news coming and the fact that Jesus gets inaugurated at the baptism. Those are the, the big takeaways there. Uh, other stuff like having authority over impure spirits, um, being the new rest on the Sabbath, being uh, spreading purity instead of receiving impurity from the man are i think like lesser themes they're still important and cool but the big takeaways from the first chapter of mark so far i think are the fact that the kingdom is coming and jesus has just been inaugurated um and he revert he did a he had a type scene that was like the fall but reversed the the uh what happened last time all right thank you guys for listening i'll see you next time